Welcome to The Classical Mind, a podcast about the great books. I am Dr. Jared Henderson. And I'm Father Wesley Walker. And today we are going to be getting into um, a writer and a philosopher that I would say when people think about like the classics, uh, this is one of the people that they think of immediately, right? This is this is one that like just immediately comes to mind. They say that's a classic. And that's because today we are going to be talking about Plato. Yeah, I mean, anybody who anybody who takes a sort of introductory philosophy course, I think this is this is pretty much where it will usually begin, right? So a lot of times, right, in my experience, there are two kinds of introductory philosophy courses. Um, one of them is a kind where you learn historically. Uh, at my first graduate institution, um, we were really history heavy, and that was what we did. So Plato was basically where you began. There are pre-Socratics, right? We call them so people before Socrates and Plato, but you almost never read them because um, uh, they're so fragmentary. Uh, but Plato is 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 often uh, it, and in fact, the copy of Plato that I have here, these five dialogues from Hackett, which is also what we've linked to on our Substack, um, that's like the text you would buy. It's like it's like it's like iconic to someone who's been a TA in a in a philosophy class, I guess. Uh, these like these Hackett, these cheap Hackett texts, because they cost like four bucks, um, and you can teach a whole semester on them because you know you get five dialogues. Um, there's also another kind of way that you would learn intro to philosophy, which is where you would maybe go topic based, and that's where maybe you would do just more contemporary stuff. Actually, for a long time, that was how I taught stuff um, before I kind of had like my. Um, my conversion to a historical uh, way of looking at things. Um, I don't know. What was your experience with Plato since, uh, you know, you have like a seminary degree, you do some theology work, um, but you also have a bit of a background in the classics. Yeah. So I think I actually, I mean, funny enough, I think most of my exposure, exposure to Plato happened in high school mm. um, where we actually did read Plato. And then, and then I did some teaching, you know, of, of homeschool students and we, we read through some chunks of Plato. Um, and then because I went to seminary, because my specialization was biblical studies rather than theology or, or historical theology, um, I really kind of dropped off the map for me as far as reading and engaging with him regularly until I started the STM program that I'm in now with Dr. Hans Borsma being a part of that. And he's really big on a sort of Neoplatonic Christianity um, and so we we did go back and and recover some Plato. Um, and that was really fun for me to to kind of revisit that and everything. Um, of course, I have a different edition than you do. I have the the Cooper uh, Plato Complete Works mm, edition. Yeah. but but because I live near St. John's University in Annapolis, St. John's College in Annapolis, where it's a great book school, that version of it is it pops up in all the used bookstores from all the students. He's probably littering the streets around St. John's. Um, yeah. Actually, I have that same Cooper edition. I'm pointing up because it's on one of my wall bookshelves yeah. and it's just a little too high. And then like my wife's a philosophy PhD student right now too. So we're like a house of philosophers. It turns out we had four copies of this. Like of we just, we just like had it lying around. So I was like, I'm going to grab the easy one, take it to a coffee shop and read it. Um, that makes us probably sound more friendly to Plato in this household than we, probably would be treated as I have now like experienced like a, a real love for him and stuff. But um, when I was in grad school, I used to joke that I was the only person in the history of the world to get a PhD in philosophy and to never read the Republic. 
and it was almost like a it was almost like a point of pride for me like let's see how long i can go without reading the republic um i i, I have remedied that but kind of on my own and very poorly um but now i've been reading you know kind of classic and historical works of philosophy again and um plato's been up there and i now have like a much higher assessment of plato and a, a kind of deeper love for, love for the stuff um you know um before we dive into like who plato is and things like this because i want to talk about that before we talk about the book um you know i had asked some people what kinds of stuff they would like to hear addressed um about plato and um i got some questions from someone um and i think actually they are more general than plato and so i wanted us to like go off script for a second and talk about this and the kind of questions that i were receiving from someone was like for a for a great historical figure like plato how do I start reading him? Or um, how do I make sure I'm getting like the unfiltered Plato and not say Plato through the lens of Neoplatonism or mm. Plato through the lens of a modern interpreter who doesn't care about Plato's cosmology or something, but really likes um, some of Plato's stuff on universals and the forms. And I don't know what you think about that, but I have like a pretty strong opinion on how to do this um which is to say stop worrying about that uh, especially if you have um don't have a huge background in this kind of stuff um you should just read like i, th I think for a lot of these people i would say this about david hume very very different period of time right thousands of years uh later um i would say this about someone who asked me how to read the bible i would say this about someone who wanted to read emily dickinson i would say that first you should just read a lot and you should just read it and see what you make of it. And what's going to happen is you're going to start asking questions. Those questions will lead you to more resources, possibly other great thinkers, possibly commentators, something like that. Ideally, you'll do this with a teacher. Many of us don't have that luxury anymore, but um, you will learn how to read and you will learn to trace influence. Not at the beginning though. You, you simply put, none of us are good enough to do that at the beginning. The answer first is like, you need to become familiar with the text. And then eventually you're going to go back and say, oh no, I totally misread Plato in the Apology or something. I totally didn't understand it. That is a normal part of the intellectual progression. And so I would say anyone who's like kind of endeavoring on this with us, especially someone who hasn't read this stuff before, the answer is um, just read. Just read. Don't worry about it. You're going to be okay. Uh, I don't know. I'm do you, in, do you I'm think in that complete right? agreement with you actually. I'm, so one of the books that changed my life, because you know, there's always... I think we can each point to probably a number of books that change our lives was um, on the incarnation by St. Athanasius. Mm -hmm. And I had been told while I was an undergrad that I need to read more church fathers. And I was at a used bookstore that summer in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I grew up and they had on the incarnation by St. Athanasius and the foreword was written by C.S. Lewis. And as a freshman student at an evangelical school, Mm -hmm. I said, man, I don't know who the St. Athanasius guy is, but I do know who C.S. Lewis is, and I like mm -hmm. him, so I'm going to buy this book, and I read it, and the introduction to that book is C.S. Lewis saying exactly what you're saying. He's saying, hey, look, if you want to read Plato, you know, he's a classic for a reason, and that reason is that he resonates with people, and so you can pick him up as someone who maybe doesn't have an extensive philosophy background, and you can still understand him, a good deal of him anyways. And so it's better to do that than to read a bunch of secondary or even tertiary sources mm -hmm. on Plato. 
Um, and so I think I think there's a good deal of truth to that. I think there's a good deal of humanism wrapped up in that. You know, you are smart enough that you can start piecing this stuff together. And, you know, I mean, ideally you will have wiser people in your life who can shepherd you through that process. But, you know, get into the text. I took yeah, a class it, with I took a class with John Bear, one of your co-religionists, you know, Orthodox mm -hmm. uh, Orthodox scholar, brilliant, one of the most brilliant people I've ever sat in a room with. I think yes, most famous for being a co-religionist with me. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But no, but it was so it was such a refreshing class because you know when you're in seminary or an advanced degree program, people want to kind of show off, and they mm -hmm. want to bring things into the class from outside the class that they've read elsewhere, and we would sit around the text all day, of origin, and John Bear would say, you know, what does this text mean? And people would try to bring stuff in. And he goes, no, 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 no. What does the text say? Yeah, yeah. And that was kind of an empowering moment, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, wait, I can actually understand what he's saying here. And I think the same is true for Plato, for sure. A absolutely. Um, when I was at Boston University, uh, David Ruchnik, who's now a retired ancient philosophy professor, when he introduced me to Aristotle, we had a rule that basically you couldn't reference outside works while talking about Aristotle uh, in the class unless you were just talking about one of Aristotle's other works. Uh, so it was like, if you like wanted it. to understand the the ethics, which is what we were working on, maybe go read the biology's works, uh, the work on biology, maybe go read the metaphysics, but don't go and read Aristotle commentaries until you're ready to start writing a paper and you're asking your research question and you're going to refine it. Obviously, engagement with commentaries, with secondary and tertiary literature is is essential for scholarly work. Frankly... A lot of people who are listening to this aren't going to do scholarly work, and that's okay. In fact, I would say one of the kind of defining ethos of a project like this is to say um, these works aren't just for scholars. The, these works are for everyone, um, and so um, just read them, and don't worry too much about um, you know whether or not you could publish this in a great journal or something. Just just read. Okay, with with that, I think we should just go straight into um, a little bit about who Plato was. Uh, I think I'm going to take the lead on this one uh, this week, but I'm sure in other weeks, uh, Wesley will be enlightening us about the lives of some of these great writers. Um, so Plato is really a, a, a founding figure for Western philosophy. Um, a lot of people will characterize philosophy as kind of a series of footnotes to Plato. That's from Alfred North Whitehead. Um, I don't like that characterization, but it's very hard to still overstate his importance. Um, interestingly, though, we actually have very few words in Plato's writing that get put in the mouth of Plato. Now, that does happen sometimes, but um, in, mostly Plato is writing dialogues uh, about his teacher, Socrates, and we have no writing from Socrates. Um, it's possible that he never wrote anything down. Um uh, himself, he was sort of a roving philosopher. Plato seems to have been, from the details we can glean, a kind of wealthy um, student of his, someone who followed him and learned from him, and then later wrote down dialogues to explore philosophical questions, uh, but using Socrates almost like a character. Um, I have this uh, little quote. It's from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is a really great resource if you're interested in anything going on in philosophy, especially historical figures. And these are professionally written encyclopedia articles, um, so by professional philosophers, by experts in the field, and it's freely available 
from Stanford. So it's really something I recommend. But in fact, the URL is plato.stanford.edu. Um, so that should tell you something about Plato. But this is what Richard Kraut writes when he's writing about Plato. Plato is, by any reckoning, one of the most dazzling writers in the Western literary tradition and one of the most penetrating, wide-ranging, and influential authors in the history of philosophy. And then if we go down to the end of this kind of long quote, um, few other authors in the history of Western philosophy approximate him in depth and range. Perhaps only Aristotle, who studied with him, Aquinas, and Kant would be generally agreed to be of the same rank. So Plato, I would say, is... Um, truly one of the greats and also one of these ones who's if you think to yourself i want to read some philosophy you probably can't go wrong by picking up a cheap copy of some plato of picking up something like this hackett edition and just just starting to read um now lots of interesting questions kind of arise when we start reading plato for one uh it's not actually always clear what plato's positions were um when you read the dialogues his his mind changes sometimes. He seems to give arguments against positions he would hold in other uh, dialogues. Um, so that's one thing. But another thing is that it seems like sometimes his purpose is to kind of provoke wonder or sort of puzzlement in you. So he's almost going to give you paradoxes, and then you have to go and try to solve them, right? So these are really, truly like teaching text. It's also not clear how much of Plato is history. So how much of this is a report on what Socrates actually said? I think that the major exception to that is the Apology. Uh, actually, in the um, the intro, the little preface to the Apology written by the translator, um, who is uh, GMA Groob, and then uh, it was revised by John Cooper um, uh, for this Hackett edition, he says that there's good reason to think that some of this has to be historical, because we know that there was a real trial for Socrates. We know he was put to death. Um, Plato mentions that he was there at the trial, and when he would have written this, there would have been a lot of men who were still alive who had been there um, because there were 501 men on the jury uh, for Socrates um, sort of at this council. And if Plato had got, had just like lied about them or given like new names or like, uh, or sorry, new arguments for Socrates as if like improving Socrates' arguments, it really probably would have um, quickly come out, right? So it, it seems like, Probably we can say this approximates what Socrates actually did in his trial. Um, and that brings us, I think, really well to the text. This text is taking place in a courtroom. It is actually Socrates defending himself. The prosecution has already rested their case um, and uh, will only be engaged a few times. A man named uh, Meletus. Uh, Meletus is mentioned in at least one other dialogue, namely Euthyphro, which happens as Socrates is on his way um, to court. Uh, but for the most part, it is Socrates involving, it's a, it's a monologue from Socrates uh, where he tries to defend himself from various accusations, namely that he is guilty of a kind of atheism and that he is corrupting the youth. So just to start, Wes, what did you think when you uh, read through this the last time? What were the big yeah. picture thoughts? Yeah, it's, um, it's always very interesting to revisit this dialogue because you have that sort of tension of Socrates being the minority, a vocal minority against a majority. And you and I were talking about this a little bit before we started recording. It always raises to me anyways, a kind of question about where do I fit into this, you know, this kind of paradigm that's at play in the dialogue. Um, 
but we'll we'll save that for a few minutes. But I, I it's it's such an interesting dialogue. There are times where I think Socrates, you know, you kind of look at his rhetorical strategy and you think, I don't really know what you're trying to accomplish by saying it that way. But then there are other times where, as he's speaking, you you just want to give him a standing ovation and and you know make him the the president or the philosopher king or whatever, um, because he's he's so brilliant. And so, um, yeah, it's always it's a very interesting dialogue. I think it's one of my certainly one of my favorites. I found this one. Um, I find it to be genuinely moving, mm-hmm. and I don't feel that way about other Platonic dialogues. I find them interesting or puzzling. Um, I find this one to be really moving. Uh, maybe one or two others, uh, actually, that are all in this collection as as Socrates is approaching death. Um, you know, I guess we're going to let people know now he loses the trial. Uh, Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's going to drink the hemlock. Uh, and it's even where we get kind of the phrase. Um, but I found this really moving. I found sometimes that Socrates is genuinely passionate about things that, that matter. Um, and namely, this kind of uh, state of his soul, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but also this pursuit of truth and just how much he values truth, not as a pragmatic thing, but like truth for itself and for its own sake. And he loves it. And I think there's a lot of stuff that's really admirable uh, about Socrates that's on display here. Mm. Yeah. So let's just go through it. You know, we'll, we'll start at the beginning. Uh, the very beginning, you know, so Melitus has made his case. And now Socrates needs to defend himself. Uh, he's going to be defending himself in front of 501 men. Um, I think Melitus might be one of them. I, I don't know if he's counted there. Um, but these are the men who will both decide his fate, if he's guilty or not, and decide his punishment. Um, so it's not like a modern courtroom at all. So so Socrates really needs to address uh, these, at least cogently enough, that half of the people will vote, right? It's around kind of very democratically in this way um it's like if a majority wins right socrates eventually will say he only needed 30 more men to change their votes and then uh if if that were the case he would have um he would have been found not guilty um and you know one of the first things um that socrates wants to address really is this kind of charge of um of corrupting the youth and whether or not he is um, involved in some kind of, I don't know, if he is purposefully maybe trying to um, corrupt um, the people, like the young men who follow him around. And he has to kind of clarify some stuff. Like for one, um, he doesn't charge anything. He's actually not like the sophist, right, uh, who charge for their skills and teach young men on how to succeed, um, right? Uh, so Wesley, I don't know, just quickly, can you tell maybe the listener a little bit about who the sophists were yeah so the sophists are a group of i guess rhetoricians really more than they are philosophers right and they um they're teachers who will who will take your money in order to show you how to be a better speaker or persuader but at least from from the socratic dialogues i've read that involves him really pushing back against them it seems like one of Socrates' problem is their concern is really not the truth itself, but rather how to use truth as sort of a means to an end. Um, that's certainly the case in Gorgias, which I was going to talk about a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, but he 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 comes down very hard on the sophists for that. You know, he basically I think he kind of sees them as having a lack of integrity. Mm-hmm. I know there's been some scholarly work 
that maybe questions this depiction of the sophists a little bit, but I don't know. I think I think there's maybe something to what uh to what Socrates is doing there because I think we can all probably identify people we've encountered who are very similar. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Nothing new under the sun, right? Yeah. Yeah. So so Socrates is like, in contrast to the sophist, he wants to say, My goal is to pursue the truth. And it's actually to pursue wisdom. And he's kind of initiated on this because a friend of his goes to like the Oracle mm-hmm. and ask who is the wisest uh, man like in Athens. And the answer that he's given is that it's Socrates. And Socrates is like, that can't be, that can't be right. Um, I don't know anything. There have to be wiser men than me. Um, so in a way, actually, he kind of admits a kind of impiety there, you might think, because he, he thinks that the oracle for the god is like, is wrong about something. But he ends up actually concluding that maybe he really is the wisest man in Athens, because he goes to like the great philosophers or the great like thinkers, to the poets, um, to the to the sophists, and eventually also to the tradesmen. And tries to question them about their uh, their knowledge of things, and he, he discovers that none of them can answer his questions. So so none of them know as much as they purport to know. Um, and it's this kind of self delusion that bars them from being truly wise. So Socrates almost wins by default. He <laughs> uh, gets to be the wisest because he's the only one who will admit that he's that he doesn't know uh, to know anything. But you can imagine how this makes you a lot of enemies if you go around the city to all of the men who might have any power, um, and then you start asking them tough questions, and your conclusion always is that they're not as smart as they think they are. Well, I was going to say, so so one of the things, so so you're right, he makes these enemies. And from the very beginning, he makes it clear what he's arguing against as far as the accusations that are brought against him. He's not these aren't credible accusations in the sense he uses the term slander mm-hmm. frequently to describe it. So I was wondering, especially since you're a philosopher, um, to which vice does slander belong the most? I mean, slander is itself wrong, but it, it belongs to a larger vice. Yeah. So um, it's helpful if we kind of distinguish between two different things first. Okay. So one of them is like intentionally spreading falsehoods. Right. Right. Um, And then another one is unintentionally spreading falsehoods about which you should have been able to discern their truth. Mm, And I think those are slightly different things. Um, So he but here in his accusers, I think he's sort of acknowledging that both of those facets are there. Exactly. The prosecution is intentional in its warping of his arguments but but then all these people on the jury are kind of buying into it which really is why this dialogue can be so scary i think right because it it points to that tendency of a sort of mob mentality yes yeah um and and actually you can see why plato becomes a critic of democracy Mm. uh right Uh, so in the republic um, plato has a lot of arguments uh, uh, about democracy and eventually aristotle his student takes up the line and actually says that democracy is like the worst form of government you can have uh and part of it to wonder is like because their teacher, the one, like the person they can trace their intellectual life to, was killed by democracy, right? Now, to answer your question, there, I think in the first case, um, probably there is a kind of, and you you can maybe help me group these into certain vices and things as, as however we want to taxonomize this. Uh, oftentimes, with the kind of intentional slander, 
there's a kind of covetousness, like, right. Like mm, a kind of okay. uh, view of like uh, being jealous of what your neighbor has, um, which then leads you to slander, uh, slander them for kind of for your own gain. Mm-hmm. Um, this is actually one of the, a kind of lie, which allows you to gain some benefit, right. It's actually one of the kinds of lies that like Aquinas will talk about when he, when he tax on, talks out on my, uh, when he taxonomizes lies, um, the other uh, the other case though, um, I think where you just accept what is being like the slander, right, or you engage in kind of an idle talk uh, there, I would say maybe corresponds to um, credulity, which is mm. kind of a kind a kind of over open mindedness. So it's like an intellectual virtue. So on the one on and the two vices here would be credulity would be one of the vices, and then um, uh, skepticism would be another one of the vices, and then sort of appropriate open mindedness somewhere in mm-hmm. the middle is the is the virtue. Um, and if that's an intellectual virtue, then it seems like that would probably be the one that's going awry in the case of believing the slander or or casually spreading it. Oh, I heard Socrates, you know, corrupts the youth. Why? I heard it from Melitus, right? Some, some right. something something like that. Deep down, though, a lot of that is just injustice, where injustice That's... is about how you deal with the other. Right. Like justice is a matter of of dealing with the other. Yeah, not giving the other what they're due. Yeah, and here Socrates is due a fair trial. You know, open minded listeners, etc. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, it doesn't seem like he gets that, which kind of raises a, a related question in my mind, anyways. Which is how 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 can slander be uprooted from the mind? Mm, right. Yeah. So, I mean, in both instances, you do have a kind of toxicity, I guess. Mm-hmm. One is, one is a very intentional version of it, but the other is, is still going along with it. Mm-hmm. So then what does the, what does the honest intellectual who wants to be devoid of these kind of prejudices that leads to injustice do in order to uproot that from their from their own minds. Yeah, you know, I think um there's a there's a key distinction here that I've picked up maybe from popular sayings or something, but I think it's a nice one. Um when you're thinking about forming a belief about another person, you should ask yourself the question of like must I believe it hmm. rather than may I believe it? Like, can't like, can I? So, is there enough grounds to form the belief in the first place versus is the evidence dispositive for the, for the other, the opposing view? Um, and I think that is like a question you can ask yourself to help train yourself to be more charitable to, uh, your fellow human beings and eventually sort of stop engaging in this behavior. Um, the problem with all of this stuff is that oftentimes it's not even intentional in the sense of like, predetermined or, or, or sort of pre-planned or premeditated would be the be the right word it's so easy for us to fall into this kind of slander and it's so easy for us to believe it um because the vices are habits just like the virtues um and so asking yourself that really tough question like setting the epistemic bar really high to believe something negative about someone um kind of gives you the training and eventually you're going to realize that asking must I believe it is actually not the right question um, because it's going to probably eventually lead to skepticism Mm. uh, about everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this is 
just like to use one of Aristotle's examples, when you're training a boy to shoot a bow and he's always hitting like too far to the left, what you do is guide his hand as if he is shooting to the right. So you don't guide him at the bullseye and eventually he will calibrate. So he realizes to aim at the bullseye and to hit it. And so for those of us who are too credulous about beliefs, uh, about negative beliefs about other people, what we need to do is almost train ourselves in incredulity and then, and then calibrate. Um, Yeah. Just like if you're trying to be more brave and you, because you're currently a coward, you will seem re- you will assess yourself as reckless when you act right. brave bravely right. but that's cuz our perceptions of actual fairness and of virtue are infected by the vices the vi- the vices can actually stop them um and, and so i would say in these cases melitus might even it might be intentional in that he knows some of it's false right but he's willing to go through with it right. cuz he probably thinks maybe you know we could almost psychoanalyze him uh, uh of like maybe he thinks the the specifics are wrong but mm-hmm. there's something there right there's something wrong there's with a Socrates. greater good yeah right yeah right, yeah right. yeah and 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 you can rationalize an awful lot um like an awful lot of lying and stuff uh about someone uh if you go down if you go down that path uh but so and that's are so much better and we don't do that anymore absolutely not no uh never we we have learned from our ancestors right yeah uh or not um I mean, I think one of the things that happens um, that Socrates accuses Melitus of is almost a kind of like anti-intellectualism. Yes. And this is going to be online uh, around 26D. Uh, and by the way, for the, the the listeners, Platonic Dialogues have these numbers next to them and uh, like 26D or something like this. So if someone is reading a different translation than you, you can still coordinate on roughly the same lines uh, because those those lines correspond to the Greek. Um, so it's really nice for dealing with other translations, but this is where he says, "Like my dear Melitus, do you think you are prosecuting an ex? Uh, do you think you are prosecuting an Exagoras? Are you so contemptuous of these men and think them so ignorant of letters as to not know these books? Blah blah blah." And he goes through these other theories and he talks about a few other names and things. And it's almost like Melitus is um, a kind of general anti-intellectual, and he's and or there's a kind of general anti-intellectualism that pervades the men of the of the of this assembly Mm. um and 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 so they are somehow hostile to people who are sort of asking the big questions um and this they would not be the only ones there's um actually a reference in this dialogue to um aristophanes play um clouds right which is one of the other contemporaneous records of socrates we have and it's a comedy, and it, it basically mocks Socrates for doing the kinds of things um, that he does. Um, I think it has him studying like gnats or something, or like fleas uh, at one point. Um, and uh, so you can see that there was just like a lot of hostility to philosophy, actually, in in Greece. Um, I do I do think it's interesting. So you know, I mean, the 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 charging in Socrates is um, corrupting the youth. But the when he is talking to Melitus here, one of the things he accuses him of, he basically says, you're not honest with yourself, right? You don't even believe what you're bringing up against me, but rather you're motivated. And he lists a couple of motives by insolence, by violence, and then by youthful zeal. Yeah, which I think yeah. Is very interesting that he he uses that phrase. Yeah. Um. There's also another indication that Melitus might be young in the Euthyphro, because as he's heading to court, he he encounters Euthyphro, this priest, 
And he mentions that he's being tried by this man named Melitus. And Euthyphro's like, I don't know who Melitus is. And Socrates is like, oh, he's this guy. And he has long hair, but not much of a beard. Oh, interesting. Okay. And, and okay. that might even be a joke. Like, I don't know. That might have just been, he also describes his nose, but I, 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 but it might be a joke to say like, Melitus is actually that young, right? He can't even mm. like grow a full beard or something. Um, or it could just be that he grows a bad beard. Like, I, I, I don't, I don't know. Sure. Uh, um, the, uh, but Melitus does, I think you're, you are right. It's kind of this, like, he's got, he's got a youthful zeal to him and he's not going to let facts stand in the way. <laughs> right. That's right. Right. And so, um, Socrates on the other hand is like determined to let people know that actually like his purpose like what he is trying to do is pursue the truth. Mm -hmm. So um, there is, you know, there's, there are these specific arguments we could talk about sometimes like um, the one about spiritual things and spiritual activities and to show that he actually believes in the gods. I find that one like less interesting than some of the stuff that happens a little bit later on there. I mean, I would suggest for any listeners, you should read those arguments and wonder about if they're any good. I think some of them are better than others. I think the argument about harming your fellow citizens by making them worse is like a pretty interesting one because, you know, this is one of these classic Socratic traps where he starts asking obvious questions. His opponent will ass assent or uh, to a premise and then immediately a conclusion follows. And for this one, it's like, um, are you uh, of the mind that like uh, someone is harmed by having worse citizens as like their neighbors. Mm -hmm. So if I make, so it's like, so if you are a worse citizen, am I harmed too? And Melitus is like, of course you're harmed. Like you want to be surrounded by good citizens and not bad citizens. And that um, does, is there any person who chooses their own harm over their own good? <laughs> and uh, Melitus says, of course not. Um, and then bam, right. Uh, we, we are on our way to a reductio. Um, for uh against Melitus, which is to say, then I wouldn't intentionally make the people worse because I would actually be harming myself. Um and we've already established that he doesn't make any money from it. So, you know, there's a there's a way to respond to that, which is to say, but what if it's in your interest to make them worse because you're gonna profit from it or something like that? You're gonna extract some other lesser good. Um, uh, but Socrates has already established that he doesn't do it for money, he doesn't take any any money. And then later in the dialogue, he's going to say basically he has no money. Uh, he's he's broke. Um, so this is like that. I like that argument a lot. I think it's I think it's a pretty interesting one because it means that Melitus would have to really soften his claims. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It would be well, actually, you're so stupid that blah blah blah. But then, if it's unwilling, then it's if if it's unwitting, then Socrates can't be convicted. You know, the, so Socrates is actually very clever in that argument. Other arguments, who knows. I, I don't know. I, I, I do sort of think, so I was on the debate team. So I often think in terms of debate strategy, right? So I think what you're describing, generally speaking, is a kind of terminally defensive argument. Mm -hmm. You know, well, I'm not gaining from this, right? Well, that's true. He's maybe not drawing a paycheck or whatever. Um, He's not, he doesn't hold political office is another kind of one of the arguments he makes, right? There's a sense in which he does have a, a certain degree of influence. I mean, he's got these people following him around because they think it's really interesting what he's doing, you know. Um, Including men who um, are young and rich, so they will eventually right. be parts of the assembly. That's true. Because That's to true. be part of the assembly is essentially to be rich and powerful. So it's like you have. 
so it's not that those arguments aren't persuasive. It's that it's that they don't really necessarily get you anywhere. So like, yes, we can all agree he's not making money and he's not directly gaining political uh, power through through what he's doing. I do think the religious arguments are interesting um, because they do bring a kind of consistency to his ethic. Mm -hmm. uh, because so, I mean, you know, whether he's personally a very pious person or not, I think is is one question but you know he says i think it's in um 29d you know i will obey god rather than you and a number of times he he kind of appeals to this sort of transcend transcendental idea of pursuing truth like we're we're talking about um and i think i think that's the only way to really make sense of his behavior here mm. so yeah. i do think that there's more maybe a more offensive argument in that he's he is pursuing truth without that piece the rest of it eh, you know i mean okay so yeah. he's not directly getting money he's not directly getting political influence but we could still maybe question some of those motives i think but he really is convinced that there are these higher ideals towards which humans should strive mm -hmm. and he himself is trying to model that and, and and he kind of compares his work as a philosopher to work that he did as a soldier beforehand one of the like weird details behind the text that's kind of hinted at sometimes is that Socrates is basically like a war hero. Yeah. Right? Like he, like he, he was commended for bravery while told that like, while other men would flee, he would stay at his post. And in fact, he even mentions later on in the dialogue, he says, it's easy to not get killed by your pursuer. Cause all right. you have to do is throw your, uh, um, your weapons down and like beg. But Socrates is like, I would never do that in battle. And I'll never do it here, right? Like, I won't say false things. Um, he he actually mentions that he has, like, a spirit, right, that stops yeah. him. Yeah. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't cause him to, like, prophesy or to tell the future. It stops him from saying falsehoods. It's like, um, right. and, and I don't know how literally he means that. It's it's hard to say when, when Socrates talks about spiritual things in, in that regard. But there is at least saying that he's bound by his conscience, Right. right to say no, like you cannot say something false, um, which is like a powerful, which is a powerful statement of of his ideals, because the men who then vote to kill him, to have him executed, have to be willing to say that whatever he's done, whatever they think he's done, is so bad, it's so wrong that a defense of like saying that I am truly following my conscience and you can see it in my behavior elsewhere. <laughs> that I have acted with conviction wouldn't still be effective. Right. Mm, and right. that is, I think, um, um, that's really interesting. It's also though, you see this, this might've also been what led Socrates to the trial in the first place, because, um, Socrates has been involved in Athenian politics before he mentions when they were still a democracy before the oligarchy was established and then before democracy was restored, he was there, he was in the assembly and he was one of the few people who would argue for consistency in the application of laws, right? right. He had, and that won him some enemies, right? And then the oligarchy um, tried to it, it sort of implicate other people in their guilt is the way he describes it. Yeah. And again, Socrates says no. So he, he actually, in both of those cases, risked his life already. So he's risked it on the battlefield for, for Athens, and he's risked it in politics, even though they could have killed him. 
Uh, and it's always the same thing. It's always like kind of a relentless um, love of of the truth. I'm I'm curious if you think. So so, he says when he's talking about his dealings with the oligarchy, um, in 32D, you know he says death is something I couldn't care less about, but that my whole concern is not to do anything unjust or impious, right? To me, his his total sort of lack of regard for death throughout this whole dialogue does smack of a kind of religious conviction, you know, that there's something to which he is answerable beyond the the here and now. Yeah. Um I I know there are people who aren't religious who would certainly say, well, no, truth is kind of worth it for its own sake. Mm -hmm. And there yeah. are those kind of arguments that he makes, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. he basically says it's good for your soul to 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 adhere to the truth throughout this whole whole thing. But mm -hmm. I'm I'm curious if you if you think that that would be a sort of persuasive argument for for him against Melitus saying he's basically an atheist. Yeah, I don't know, because some of the other times. So it's clear that Socrates has sort of an external standard to which he holds himself, um, which I think you are right, like non-religious people have have that as well, these kind of convictions that are greater than themselves. Um, I don't know if this immediately speaks in that context, if that's going to be inferred as like a religious motivation, sure. because there are a few other things that Socrates does that actually make um, the religion stuff a little bit harder to believe. Like Socrates's particular religious views are actually very hard to discern sure. um, in part because he, he often references the God, right? Everyone else says gods. Right. So like what's going on there, you know, um, um, two, clearly he is a little disdainful of what like some priests say, like he kind of shows up the youth, uh, Euthyphro in that dialogue and Euthyphro right. is like a well-known priest. Um, and it's kind of hard to imagine Socrates also just being like a normal pious Athenian on top of right. this. Um, I mean, I think what happens, my own kind of speculation about that would be that, that for Socrates, like it's a precursor to what eventually would become a, like a classical Christian view that like God is the good, like right. where for Christians, that's typically like the personal God who I relate to is the transcend, uh, the transcendentals. Mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. but for socrates it's almost like the good is like my god right, right? like I, yeah. I i like the form of the good right uh and it's kind of a later christian innovation uh during this kind of synthesis uh yes. right to to identify that with like a personal god as well um and so i i think you could maybe read socrates that way and then one final point on it on it because i'm sure you have a lot to say here uh is that Socrates has these arguments for why death doesn't bother him uh, because he thinks that there's two options. Yes. And right. one of them is um, nothing happens to my soul. And I just like, and it's like, I go to sleep in which case eternity is like an evening. And so who cares? Evenings are fine to sleep through. Right. And the second one is um, he will go where all souls go. So he'll go to Hades. And if he goes to Hades, one of the things he mentions is like, I get to talk to Homer and like, there's going to be all these other, there's going to be all these other people I get to talk to. And I would die a thousand times uh, to be able to be able to do that. Um, yeah. So those are like less religious arguments and more like given the available options, turns out maybe death's not so bad. Right. 
that's yeah. fair that's fair i certainly i certainly think that's true and i i did i do find that to be a curious part where he talks about the sort of death as two two options i've always thought you know if if there isn't something sort of after death then death seems like a, a rather suffocating claustrophobic kind of reality for me mm-hmm. but um but anyways but i i i do think um I do think the way I've always understood Socrates and and my exposure to him is much more limited than than yours. But it it almost to me it seems like he is so dedicated to to truth and to beauty and to goodness and and to all these um, virtues that that he inevitably comes up against some of the sort of external boundaries of of the sort of polytheistic world in which he inhabits. Mm-hmm. Um, so he sort of intuitively knows there's something wrong with it, but I, it's like, he doesn't really have a grammar or a lexicon for really fleshing that out. So like he operates within those categories, but he doesn't really buy them a hundred percent either. I definitely had this, this thought while reading this. I mean, it's like maybe easier for us to, to have this realization as like, um, both like very historically minded Christians, sure. but I was like, man, it's really hard to be a Greek polytheist and believe the things he believes. Right. Like, I, I, I think I might've written that in the margins, like, man, like polytheism makes this stuff hard. Right. Um, or it might've been when I was reading Euthyphro again, cause I reread it this morning. Um, um, and you, you know, just having one, like one God really simplifies the, the metaphysics a lot actually, which is not a compliment most people would pay to Christian metaphysics is that it, they would not say that it made it simple, but compared to like Greek polytheism mixed with Platonism, mm-hmm. it, it's, mm-hmm. it's easier. Um, yeah. You know, it's like as if Socrates quite can't quite sit comfortably in his context. Um, and thus, you know, maybe it's almost inevitable that he's going to run against people, right. Run against the sensibilities of his day. Um, one of the things that really struck me in the text is like after um uh, after the the verdict has come down i actually think this is where the the apology becomes oh perhaps we should explain that there are sort of uh, multiple sections to this dialogue there's the part where socrates is arguing for his innocence he's found guilty and then part of the trial system was there's now an argument about what the what the just punishment for the crime that he's been convicted of is so Melitus and once he's convicted Melitus argues for his death Mm -hmm. and then Socrates responds what he thinks the right punishment for his action should be yeah and he like gives some options the first thing is like um uh food he want, first one is like free food he wants to be fed in the places that the olympic victors are fed and he <laughs> and he does it oh my goodness this is such a great line but he's saying that actually it's not nothing would be more suitable because to be fed than to be fed where the olympian victors are because the olympian victor makes you think yourself happy i make you be happy yes and what why how does he make you be happy it's because um he makes you know the state of your soul he gives you self-knowledge uh um but like through his process so the first thing uh that Socrates says is i've been found guilty of these things and in some way i am guilty of some of the like of what i have described right just not how melitus would describe it and for that i should actually be rewarded and that's his like first gambit but then he goes into this really really great moment where he is saying um like i've dispelled the slander i i defended myself um and that he should either fear what Melitus has prescribed for him, or then he writes like, 
am I then to choose in preference to this something that I know very well to be an evil and assess the penalty at that? Meaning, should he choose a lesser punishment, even though he knows he shouldn't des doesn't deserve it, right? And basically he's saying, I won't do it. I won't advocate for falsehood. Um, and he, he would not, um, he won't put forward a kind of moderate punishment because maybe enough people, since it was so close, you know, only 30 votes or so, um, maybe enough people would have gone for the moderate pun punishment, right? Uh, and Melitus also went, had a strategic move here, right? He went for the extreme punishment, almost giving Socrates an out, given the, the, the dynamics of the court. Socrates says, no, I won't, I won't do it. I won't advocate for falsehood. Um, but then he gives a few other options. And finally, he says, I will, I will assess a penalty that you will accept because it can't hurt me because I don't care about it. So it's actually not a penalty and that's money. So the first thing then he's like, but wait, I don't have any money uh, because <laughs> I have neglected my family and my business to, to be a philosopher. So you can ask for like one Mina of silver. Um, and that's what I can give. And then he reports like, oh, actually a few men like Plato and some men of Athens and Crito and a few other people, they'll pay for me. So uh, 30 minas, right? And like these these rich these rich young men will will be the ones to actually pay it, right? Um, you know, you know it when you like when you read it, you know he's already been found guilty. And then when he gives this, you know they're not going to choose that, right? You know, right. it would be um, anti-drama or something. And so the next little line is just the jury now votes and sentences Socrates to death. And he, doesn't he also suggest exile as a possible option as well? Like he goes somewhere else and gets to basically do what he does for Athens to other people. Oh yeah, he's, he's like, like it would be. A, he's kind of like, well, but they may not really accept that either. Just like you yeah. all haven't really accepted it. Yeah, it's like it will be a very fine life actually to go somewhere. <laughs> you know, he, it's like he gets to go retire basically, but he's going to do yeah. the same stuff that he's been doing. Um, and now you know, uh, then that's like and, when we move into this third bit, which is the reflection on the punishment. But I think you had some other thoughts. Well, I was going to say this is where when 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 he's debating about what the penalty should be, this is where he he gives that famous line: "The unexamined life is not worth living." Um, oh yeah, absolutely. So. It's That's it's to 38. say, yeah. On the other hand, if I say that it's the greatest good for a man to discuss virtue every day and those other things about which you hear me conversing and testing myself and others, for the unexamined life is not worth living for men, you will believe me even less. So it's actually this great line of wisdom packed in um, to him saying, you're not going to believe me. You know, and this is interesting. This, oh, go ahead. This is pearls before swine, basically. Right. This is, yeah. And it's interesting because he couches this after he's saying, look, like, I kind of have two arguments here. One of them is the divine, you know, I'm, I'm getting this stuff from the gods and you don't believe that. But then this is even more unbelievable to you. You know, yeah. that the unexamined life is not worth living. Yeah. Yeah. And then we enter into this final phase of the apology, um, which is only, you know, two or three pages. And it's, it, this is really where you get mm -hmm. um, Socrates' reflections on death because he, he has known it and it's like they let him speak to the, uh, to the assembly after sentencing him to death. And this is, you know, where he makes this comparison. It is, it is easy to flee death, to escape death. Um, but it is harder to escape wickedness and that wickedness has finally caught him because he is old and he is slow. But then he gives them this, it's almost a curse, you know, yep. I leave you now condemned to death by you, but they are condemned uh, by truth to wickedness and injustice. 
And this is actually a really important point to kind of understand a lot of Greek philosophy or a lot of like Greek ethical writing. Uh, and it's something I think we've lost in the modern world, which is a belief that doing evil hurts you. Right. So we often want to, we have a very flat moral discussion of these things. And we think like, like the oppressor hurts the oppressed. Like this is, this is kind of the matrix we like mm -hmm. to put things into. Mm -hmm. And the Greeks do not deny that part. Right. But they, but, but in the case of someone like Socrates, the argument goes, they hurt themselves more because they hurt their souls. Right. And um, they actually, one of the things that the oppressed can get or the people who have been harmed by injustice is that while materially they can be hurt and their bodies can be hurt, their souls can remain intact in a different way. Um, and, and this is as like kind of precursor to something we're going to talk about, I think like next month when we read The Life and Time of Frederick Douglass. This is a point Frederick Douglass uses. Mm -hmm. When he actually points to like the the inhumanity and almost like the animalistic nature of some slave owners, because to be that cruel to someone, you have to like sort of start tearing up your own soul, right? And right. And, and so it is actually harming them too. Yeah. Um, so this is a this is a really cool thing I think where a a, a Greek point, a, a a very classical a moral point that no one nowadays believes. Or that like so few people believe that they wouldn't take it seriously at all. And I'm right. sure some people, when they heard me describe this, rolled their eyes. Also was an abolitionist point uh, in, right. in American history. And was carried into, I mean, you can even find that in James Cone's writings uh, in the 1960s, you know. 70s. Yeah, so when people are like, writing like liberation theology stuff, right. right? It gets carried over. So these points that we would sometimes roll our eyes at and say, that's actually just a service to the 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 oppressor, right? Not true. Not true at all. None of that's true. Because and we can see it through the people who actually argued against that <laughs> that yep. stuff and lived through it. I I was I'm writing my thesis on a on an obscure 12th century theologian named Hugh of Saint Victor, and he literally I was writing a section this morning on vice in his thought, and he he makes this exact point that a sin is something that is itself a judgment against the person who commits it because it, it shows their vice. It's their will consenting to their vice. So the action itself, because of the misery that it brings is the punishment, but it's also an action that's worthy of punishment, you know? So there's kind of a, a dual nature to that. Like mm -hmm. within the action itself is contained a certain consequence to the, to the bad thing that's been done, which actually this comes up in other platonic dialogues, obviously, but, but perhaps most pertinently in, in Gorgias, where he talks about the function of rhetoric and its relation to justice. And he says, you know, if you love someone, you should use rhetoric to try and convict them of what they do wrong, you know, try to convince them they've done something wrong and they need to go turn themselves into the judge. And if they won't, you need to go to the judge and use rhetoric to try and get them to punish the person for what they did wrong. But he says, if you don't care about the person, if you don't like them, if you hate them, then don't say anything at all because it's worse for them that you just, you know, you let them keep doing what they're doing and yeah. they'll kind of reap their own reward. Yeah. Oh, that's good stuff. You know, I, I had this, this thing I was going to end on, on Plato, which was like, who were Plato's influences and why you should keep reading them if, as if this didn't, you know, convince you. And I had this list of, of people or schools that I thought had been influenced by Plato. And like the list was going to be really simple and it was going to be like, um, Christian theology, uh, uh, is deeply influenced because of this kind of patristic synthesis and like Aristotle, 
is influenced by Plato, who then goes on to uh, basically shape Western theology, but also Western science. And actually, a lot of Islamic theology and philosophy mm -hmm. is shaped by the preservation of Aristotle as well. That's right. So I had this whole thing. And then I now through this, I'm like, but probably for most people who would listen to this podcast, the thing that is most relevant is actually that like American abolitionists use the same kind of arguments that Socrates did. Right. 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 <laughs> like, like so in in a, a history that is actually not that far from us, right? Uh um uh we, we we were encountering this. So actually Plato's arguments, Greek philosophy, all of this stuff continues to kind of resound with us like into our our present moment. And and with that, I think we should probably wrap up our discussion could, of Plato. Could I make one more point? Oh, please do. Yeah. Okay. So so one one last thing that I found to be highly interesting, and it's it's somewhat tied to, to what we have talked about is that Socrates has this really profound hope um, of something beyond death, mm -hmm. right? Or that, or, or that rather he even says death itself is a blessing. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's in 40C, you know, there is good hope that death is a blessing for one of two things. And this is exactly what you were talking about earlier. It's either the sleep, in which case it's just a, an evening, or um, it's the relocation of the soul into something else. Um, but, but I think it's, it's, profound and very interesting to me that as he's on his way to death he encourages all these younger guys that he's with um who are around him that they should that they should be of good hope which makes me think i mean it's very the parallels to to like the some of the things jesus says you know be of good cheer you know mm -hmm. those kind of things yeah, yeah. um it, it's just very interesting to me the sort of hope beyond hope that that somehow his clinging to the truth will will have these larger ramifications. Um, he doesn't maybe know what that means exactly. Yeah, yeah. But he knows that it's worth doing. Um and and you know, um just as a matter of history, Socrates won. Right? We know about Melitus because he's in this book. Right. <laughs> like, right. Uh um we uh um and like because he's mentioned and he gets like three lines in in the whole in the whole dialogue. But Socrates is like the name of how we run seminars, right? <laughs> like the Socratic yep. dialogue or the Socratic method. Um, through his student, like what we mean by Platonism, um, these this the unexamined life is not worth living is almost a cliche at some point, but it's like this deeply impactful moment actually in his real trial. So like Socrates won. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and so there is this kind of nice narrative arc to it. And that's kind of his last wish sort of right is he 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 basically says do what i do to you all to my own children because that's mm -hmm. what's best for them and i want yeah. what's best for them and i think that's i think that's pretty cool and i think more proof that he's not purely an atheist right all right so i think this is going to bring us uh to the end of our discussion of Plato. I really hope that everyone here has enjoyed it. I hope that you go and read the Apology. I hope that you go read all five dialogues that are in this little book or you decide to read The Republic. Uh, maybe one day we'll talk about The Republic. That makes a lot of sense. Oh, certainly, yes. Um, and I think that this means that it's time for our ending segment, which we call End Notes, where we both recommend a book to the listener based on what we've read like this, uh, this month, but also just stuff we like to read in general. So Wesley, why don't you lead? So two two things uh, based on this dialogue. So to go back to our earlier discussion, you know, the best way to get into Plato is to just read Plato. And I really think after after rereading Apology again that it, it correlates so well with much of what he says in Gorgias. So if you want to read, if you read the Apology and you want to do more, then go go check out Gorgias, which is um, 
which is him engaging with the sophists, talking about why rhetoric matters, and it's it's really in its relationship to justice. He talks a lot about the idea of the soul after death, you know, arriving at a sort of final judgment and being judged on its shape, its form, you know, whether it it is what it's supposed to be. Um, and so I, I find that to be very interesting. I find his interlocutor there to be very sort of Nietzschean in his outlook, you know, sort of a, a will to power kind of approach to to rhetoric and everything. So I find I, I think that's a great dialogue and I think it would go really well with exactly a lot of the themes in, in apology. So um, there's that. And then if you're interested just in kind of a larger view of Plato and and some maybe a secondary source that that helps you piece things together. Um, there's a book called uh, Plato's Philosophers, The Coherence of the Dialogues by Catherine Zuckert. And uh, I, I just always find that a helpful reference when I'm reading a, a dialogue again. I, I usually go check out what she has to say about it. And um, I think that that's helpful. Yeah. I, you know, I wasn't going to do this originally, but I'll also recommend a platonic dialogue before I recommend my my real book for the uh, for the month. I'm going to recommend a weird one, and that's the Timaeus. Mm, yes. So Timaeus is the work of Platonic cosmology. It is almost entirely disregarded now. I took a seminar on it near the end of my undergrad days. I barely understood it. I didn't work hard enough in that class, and I wish I had. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that the Timaeus at one point was probably the most influential Platonic dialogue. So Plato's cosmology persisted for a lot of people in the discussion of like the heavenly spheres and this kind of geometric view of the of the cosmos. Um, this mattered more than I think people would realize. And it's just cool to hear. It's also where you get like the view of like the demiurge, which is kind of like almost mm -hmm. like a deistic view of the world, which might be kind of close to what Socrates believed. I, I, who knows? Uh, I mean, there's so many good things. All the dialogues are good, um, but Timaeus, it's just so funky and interesting that you should just give it a shot. But the thing I want to recommend, and I, I brought it here since we'd be on camera, is this science fiction novel called, um, I don't know if it's Anathem or Anathem. I'm never sure. I hear it both ways from Neil Stevenson. This is like a, a this huge, um, very weird, like uh, secondary world kind of science fiction. But in the backdrop are all these philosophical conversations that get worked out in a lot of detail that are all basically Platonism. And it's, and it's like... If you wanted to read a book about like monks, but they're not monks who like worship anything, they just do science while remaining cloistered and argue about Platonism. Like this is the book. It's surprisingly compelling. It's 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 very interesting. Um, and I, I'm a big fan of like mixing your reading with like science fiction or like fantasy or something like this, in addition to like literary fiction and things and like hard philosophy and stuff like that. Just like keep yourself a little fresh. And Neil Stevenson is is one of my go-to guys for that. The book I never knew I needed about a bunch of monks arguing about Platonism and doing science. Honestly, once you read it, you got to let me know because I think you'll I think you'll love it. It's, oh, I'm sure I will. It's it's so good. Um, and if, if anyone here has read any Stevenson, uh, Anathem is um, notable for having an ending. Uh, not all Stevenson books end well; they just kind of end. <laughs> uh, Anathem has has a real ending, and that's and that's pretty cool. Um, all right. Well, I think that brings us to the end of the episode for this month. Thank you everyone who's persisted through, you know, this hour of talking about Plato and other books and philosophers. Um, if you like what we're doing here, I want to take a second and just ask you to, you know, rate and review us on Apple podcast, which is such a useful thing for discovery, sharing us with a friend, which is such an easy thing you can do to just get us out there. 
Um, but also if you're really interested and you want to help support us, uh, you can do that by going to our Substack. That's the classicalmind.com for $5 a month or for $50 a year. Uh, you can become a member of our community. We're trying to build up a discussion community where we're going to have monthly discussion posts. Um, those aren't quite lively yet, but I think they'll get livelier as people join and it'll just keep getting better. But you'll also get to help us pick books in the future, at least two books a year. And the first one's going to come up in the next couple of months. So um, the sooner you get in there, the more influence you have. And frankly, we just love to you know, get to know some of our listeners a little bit better and maybe hear about what you're reading too.